If you would please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. In those days Peter stood among the brothers, uh, believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago, through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in the ministry. And then parenthetically, with the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For Peter, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. We've been seeking, this is the fifth Sunday, to construct a theology of hate based on scripture. If one reads through the Bible, as we've been doing as a congregation this year, we will come across, and we have come across, passages that in today's world would easily be classified as hate speech and certainly smack of bigotry. If we are to be people of integrity, we have to come to grips with this. We can't simply sweep it under the rug. You might be wondering, what kind of passages do you have in mind? Well, in the Psalms, we have what are known as the imprecatory Psalms. Uh, Imprecate means uh, to invoke or call down, usually curses something negative on someone. And it comes from the Latin word meaning to invoke or to pray for. Just let, let me read to you a few of these imprecatory passages. Psalm 10. But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it and take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. Then in Psalm 35. May those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame. May those who plot my ruin be turned back in dismay. May they be like, the chaff, before, like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. May their path be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Since they hid their net for me without cause, and without cause dug a pit for me, may ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hid entangle them. May they fall into the pit to their ruin. Psalm 58. Break the teeth in their mouths, O Lord. Tear out, O Lord, the fangs of the lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows be blunted, like a slug melting away as it moves along, like a stillborn child. May they not see the sun. In Psalm 69, may the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed among the righteous. Psalm 109 beginning at verse 9. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. 
May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of the fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. And then perhaps one of the most familiar and most disturbing is from Psalm 137. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. If you have a problem with these passages, you are not alone. C.S. Lewis spoke of these passages as devilish and diabolical. He wrote, The hatred is there, festering, gloating, undisguised. And also, uh, we should be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved it, or worse still, used it to justify similar passions in ourselves. Another wrote, These forms of expression are of such cold-blooded and malignant cruelty as to preclude the entertaining the idea for a moment that they are, were inspired by God. To be honest, I think that's sort of the easy way out, to imagine that all scripture is given by God, except those passages that we find particularly offensive. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who defended these imprecatory psalms, said, look at the psalmist. Look at some of these, those imprecatory psalms. What are they? There is nothing wrong with them. It's just the zeal of the psalmist. He's grieved and troubled because these people are not honoring God as they should. That's his supreme concern. By the way, I'm reminded of uh, something that Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote. The Psalter, that is the book of Psalms, impregnated the life of early Christianity. Whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church. With its recovery will come unsuspected power. So the Psalms are important and the imprecatory Psalms as well. But one might object, yeah, Damon, but that's Old Testament. You know, people in the Old Testament, they didn't know about love like we do. Uh, in some ways, some would imagine that they are less important than the New Testament. I would point out that most of the imprecatory Psalms were composed by David. But again, uh, the objection is they are Old Testament. We don't find such things in the New Testament, do we? Well, listen. Matthew chapter 11. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Just a question. What do you think woe means? W-O-E. Don't you think that in fact Jesus is in fact in, uh, is calling down, he is invoking uh, destruction on these cities? And then at the Last Supper, Jesus said, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. 
The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And then we come to our text today. Here in Acts chapter 1. In which Peter quotes not from one but from two imprecatory psalms. Uh, Psalm 69 that I read earlier. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. And then Psalm 109, I began reading in verse number 9, but Peter quotes from verse number 8, May his days be few, may another take his place of leadership. And then we come to the writings of Paul. 1 Corinthians 16, If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Galatians chapter 1, But if even we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Well, one might easily say, yeah, but that's, that's Paul. You know, Paul is just sort of hot-blooded. Um, well, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? We find imprecatory language both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We hear such language from David, from Paul, from the martyrs, and yes, even from Jesus. Years ago, in the early 90s, when I spoke on the imprecatory psalms, someone asked me if I thought that David prayed or wrote these psalms before or after his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. And I explained that I don't believe that David's spiritual state or level was the primary issue. I don't think he wrote these psalms when he was a state of, of unrepentance, that he was unrepentant, um, but he very well could have written them before Bathsheba or after. The issue was David's concern for God's honor and how that God's enemies were going about their business as though they had no concern for God whatsoever. David wants God to stop them. Consider that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we are saying is that God's kingdom cannot come without Satan's kingdom being destroyed. God's will cannot be done on earth without the destruction of evil. Martin Luther, in writing on this part of the Lord's Prayer, said, he must put all the opposition to this, his kingdom, in one pile and say curses, malediction and disgrace upon every other name and every other kingdom. May they be ruined and torn apart and may all their schemes and wisdom and plans run aground. As we've seen in this series, we are made in the image of the Creator. We have not only the capacity to love, we are made to love, but we also have the capacity to hate because as we have seen, God hates. God is not hate. just want to point that out. God is love, but God is not hate. But it is his response to those things which offend his holiness. Our problem is, because of the fall, because of sin, our love, our capacity to love and to hate are disordered. They are out of whack. They are not as they should be. In his book, Reordered Love, Reordered Lives, Learning the, meaning, the Deep Meaning of Happiness, David Noggle said that the seven deadly sins are in fact 
seven disordered loves, pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust, they are disordered loves. Pride, envy, and anger come from an obsession with ourselves, whereas greed, gluttony, and lust come from an excessive love for things. In other words, in the first three, we, our focus is way too much on ourselves and loving ourselves, and the second three, on loving things. The result is, instead of loving God as we should, we love other things. Things have been put in their place. Because of sin, our loves are disordered, which lead to disordered lives. I would argue that the same is true for hate, which results, I think, in our failing to understand the call of Jesus. In Matthew 10, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In Luke 14, in the same way any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then in John 12, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The call of Jesus to hate ourselves and our family members is not because there is something wrong with them. It is not because they are evil. After all, they are God's creatures made in his image. Rather, it is a call for a hatred of a misplaced love, love that has been twisted and disordered, a disordered love for ourselves and even for those who are very near to us. We've seen in another series that we are what we want. We are not defined primarily by what we know, some I think would prefer that, but what, by what we love and what we hate. As human beings, we can't not love, and we can't not hate, okay? because we are made in the image of the Creator, and God is love, and we have seen that God also hates. But sin has twisted that in us. We bear the image of God, but it's been marred and twisted. So we do not love or hate as we should. And we do not love or hate what we should. We love or hate what we should not. Evil is something that does not have existence on its own. It's parasitic. It's a parasite. All evil is, in fact, a disordered love. It's love that has gone astray. And as we are driven by love, uh, when the objects of our love are wrong or take us away from God, then we have real problems. I think in part what this means is that even when we do things we should not do, oftentimes it seems as though it's necessary to us because our view of what is to be loved or what is to be hated has gone off track. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read any of P.D. James' novels. Um, I really like her writing. But one of her characters in a novel said, people mean well when they are doing their worst. That's because our loves and our hates are disordered. So if you read P.D. James' books, all of her villains all of the killers, the murderers, if you wish, are somewhat sympathetic. They're not totally 
villainous. They don't come across as villains. All of them seem to have a tinge of goodness that's gone bad. Which means that we are like them. We can't easily dismiss them and say, well, I would never do something like that. They are victims of what James calls the essential heartbreak of life. They have desires, they have dreams that have been frustrated. Things have not turned out the way that they want. And so they begin seeking revenge on those who have deprived them, those who have interrupted, who have knocked them off the path, if you wish, to getting happiness as they imagine. So they're filled with real resentment and ultimately it's resentment against God. He didn't let them have what they wanted. He didn't let them have what they think they are owed. We should remember that vengeance belongs to God. We hear this in the Old Testament. We hear it in the New Testament. Uh, Paul tells us that vengeance belongs to God in Romans 12:19. We are not we are not to seek revenge. It is the Lord who will balance the books. We are to pray to him for help, leaving room for his wrath. And David does not take revenge. Instead, he prays. And he prays these prayers that to us seem to be filled with hate speech. But what you see is he is not being passive, helplessly passive, but neither is he being actively sinful or vengeful. Instead, he is praying. He is praying to God. By the way, in Psalm 83, he writes, Cover their faces with shame so that men will seek your name, O Lord. We've seen in this series that God hates those things which are contrary to his holiness. We would do well to remember that God's holiness is not impotent, it is not passive, it is not helpless, it is active, it is powerful. And as we saw last week, um, may revisit this next week because I think it's very important. As with God's work of creating, his ongoing work of creating, God's activities are marked by wisdom. We saw that we have will, power, and wisdom. And if you were to ask the average Christian when God created the world, was it will, was it power, was it wisdom? I think we'd all go with power. But the reality is his will is at work, but also there is wisdom because God's creating the world isn't just sort of a willy-nilly throw everything into the pot and see what comes out. It is actually all pointed toward the telus of the new creation. God created and is creating in wisdom. And therefore, I would say that God's hate is also an aspect of his wisdom. He hates with wisdom. It isn't just sort of flying off the handle as oftentimes we do. But we've also seen in this series that hate is not God's only response to that which is contrary to his character. And we see this supremely in the cross. Paul wrote in Romans 5, But God demonstrated his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we're not careful, we would say that when we were still sinners, God hated us. And that's the only thing God could do. But in fact, God loved us and Christ died for us. The pattern we see in the Creator is the one that we should follow. 
Meaning that we should in fact stand opposed to those things that offend God's holiness, that are contrary to what God says. But hate is not the only possible response. And what we see in the psalmist, as disturbing as it may be, is prayer. Is prayer. And I wonder if we do that, if we pray for our enemies. I find myself time after time convicted by my wife's words when someone tags the church and then she'll say we need to pray for the people who tag the church I must confess that prayer isn't usually the first thing that comes to mind but prayer is what we find in the psalmist and we leave vengeance to God we should be guided by wisdom and I think here we may be sorely lacking And we should remember that hate is not the only possible response. As many of you know, in the early 16th century, there was a Polish astronomer named Nicholas Copernicus who caused an uproar, one might even say a revolution, when he wrote a book and he said that the sun was the center of the universe, of this solar system, not not the earth. I would suggest that we need something just as revolutionary in our thinking, something just as radical in our thinking, that we are not the center of all things. But God's glory is. And that's what we hear in David time after time. He is offended because God is not the center of people's lives. And the result of this revolution should be that both our loves and our hates are guided by the example of the Creator, guided by wisdom, and recognizing it's not the only possible response that God loved us even when we hated Him and Christ died for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would confess that there are things in the Scriptures that we find deeply troubling. And we could easily just ignore them or sweep them under the rug. But this is your word. We hold that to be true. And when we read our brothers, centuries, even millennia ago, saying such things, may we seek to be instructed rather than to instruct them. As you hate those things which offend your holiness, may we as well. But may we not act in vengeance, but rather respond in prayer. That way we can pray for our enemies, because hate isn't the only possible response. We are human beings. We are fallen human beings. We believe ourselves, even though we would never say it out loud, that we are the center of all things. That the world revolves around us. That even you and your eternality and omnipotence and omniscience, that somehow you're there to serve us. May you work in our hearts and minds and help us to see the truth that you are the Lord God Almighty. You are the center of all things and you are the one that we are to worship. And as those made in your image, may we seek to follow 
your example. I thank you for bringing us together on this warm day. Keep us safe in this heat in the days to come for those that aren't with us as well. We're so grateful to have Dan DePue with us and to have Nevin with us for the first time. May you watch over both of them. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.